heads up before we get going. This is a grown-up story about prison. It describes violent acts, including sexual assault. This episode also discusses self-harm and suicide. It's not for kids, and it may not be for all adult listeners. A federal lawsuit filed in 2020 focuses on violence and sexual assault inside Alabama's prisons for men. That case could eventually lead to federal oversight of the state's prisons. But the thing is, Alabama is already under federal court order to fix its prison conditions. That's because of another lawsuit filed years ago, criticizing mental health care for people in prison. The case first went to trial in 2016. Jamie Lee Wallace was the first person to testify. At the time, Wallace was incarcerated at Donaldson Correctional Facility, living in a unit for people with serious mental illness. These are voice actors reading from a court transcript. Good morning. Can you tell the court your full name, please? Jamie Lee Wallace. Lisa Borden is one of the lawyers who represented Wallace and other Alabama inmates. How old were you when you first had some mental health treatment? Six years old. Jamie Wallace was serving a 25-year sentence for murder and attempted murder. In 2009, he shot and killed his mom at their home in Graysville, Alabama. On the witness stand, Wallace described having several mental illnesses. He told his lawyer sometimes he hears things and sees things that aren't there. When you hear things, tell me what you hear. Basically, my mama. You hear your mom? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Does hearing voices ever cause you to do anything? Yes, ma'am. It causes me to cut myself. Ten days after this testimony, Jamie Wallace was dead. He killed himself inside a prison cell. Jamie Wallace is one of the incarcerated men who sued Alabama's Corrections Department and its former commissioner, Jeff Dunn, in the case that came to be known as Braggs versus Dunn. Edward Braggs was another plaintiff named in the lawsuit. The men say Alabama's prison system is violating their constitutional rights by failing to provide adequate mental health care. Prison officials disagree. It's a legal battle that's been going on for nearly eight years, and it could be a preview of what's to come as Alabama begins another battle in federal court. From WBHM in Birmingham, this is Deliberate Indifference, the story of Alabama's prison crisis and the people inside it. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. In this episode, we hear what it's like to be locked up in Alabama with a mental illness and whether this lawsuit will change things. And could I move my chair to be here? Absolutely. Okay. Tara Griffin has spent her career, more than 20 years, working in mental health care. I'm a licensed professional counselor, supervisor, and worked in various settings from um, school counseling to private practice, which is what I'm doing now, and everything in between. In the summer of 2018, Griffin started working as a mental health supervisor inside Alabama's prisons. She says the benefits were not as good as her hospital position, but she was excited to get the job. This was something that I had always wanted to do and really felt like I needed to do it, and so I did. She worked for a company called Wexford Health Sources. It's the private company that provides mental health and medical care inside Alabama's prisons. Griffin worked at Donaldson Correctional Facility. It's one of two prisons for men that's considered a treatment hub. 
basically what that means is like they have the mental health hospitals within a prison, basically, is what that is, just to keep it simple. While it's not an actual hospital, in those facilities, men can receive mental health care in residential treatment units, or RTUs. These units are designed to provide a more therapeutic environment. And recent court rulings specify that they should offer more counseling, programming, and observation for people in prison with serious mental illness. So that's your categories of, like, the psychosis and major depression and bipolar types of disorders. And so there's a separate mental health unit, mental health cells, where they are, you know, where they live. And it's supposed to be for a specific amount of time. Well, we'll just say until they get well, until they're well enough to go back in the general population. And sometimes that's quickly and sometimes that's not. So some of the guys have been there for a while because they're just so sick that they, it's not safe for them to be in general population. One of the treatment hubs, a men's prison called Bullock, also has a stabilization unit. It provides the highest level of mental health care in Alabama's prison system. Men are supposed to stay there for a short period of time to receive more therapy and close observation. According to court documents, the mental health units at Donaldson and Bullock prisons can house roughly 400 men in total. That's just a fraction of the prison system's mental health caseload. As of late 2021, Alabama prison officials say about 4,500 people, about a quarter of the prison population, have some kind of mental health need and receive counseling or medication. And most of those patients live in the general prison population. They're supposed to go to a different part of the prison to get medication or see a counselor. But space and staff are limited. Tara Griffin says when she worked at Donaldson, counseling sessions sometimes happened in the hallway or standing outside of cell doors. She says it was normal for counselors to be caring for anywhere from 75 to 100 patients. Griffin ended up leaving the job after about a year. She says the work was grueling. I'm sitting here as I'm talking to you now, and I'm thinking, my gosh, how did we do that? And, I mean, it's easy, right, to run a hospital. But to run a hospital within prison walls is where it gets complicated. So you can't do your job as well as you would like to or want to or need to. Um... Because, there's, because you're doing it in a prison, because there are so many restrictions, because there are so many things going on. I mean, you know, and in the prison, safety is first. I get it. I want to be safe. I don't ever want them to waver on that um, or never wanted them to waver on that. But in the midst of maintaining safety, just like we know how to prioritize health issues, we have to do the same thing with mental health issues because an untreated mental health issue leads to death, just like cancer does. By the time Tara Griffin started working at Donaldson Prison, the Braggs versus Dunn lawsuit was well underway. The judge overseeing the case, federal judge Myron Thompson, issued one of his first major opinions in the case in 2017. It was more than 300 pages long. In it, Thompson says mental health care in Alabama's prisons is horrendously inadequate. And he says the inadequacies start at the door. He says the Alabama Department of Corrections does not properly identify people with mental health needs. And when a need is identified, Thompson writes that prisoners receive significantly inadequate care. 
Judge Thompson says Alabama does not do enough to prevent the worst possible outcome in mental health care, suicide. The judge cites many stories of people who were not getting the treatment that they needed inside prison, including Jamie Wallace, the first witness to testify in the trial, the man who killed himself 10 days later. Judge Thompson writes, without question, Wallace's testimony and the tragic event that followed darkly draped all the subsequent testimony like a pall. Dozens of attorneys have represented inmates in the Braggs versus Dunn lawsuit. Lawyers with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program, and private firms. Lisa Borden joined the team in 2016, shortly before testimony began. Once I got involved in the case, it was decided that um, I would be the person who would um, put Jamie on the stand at trial. And so I did spend a lot of time uh, with Jamie, getting to know him, um, you know, preparing his testimony, answering his questions. According to court records, Wallace had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, an intellectual disability, and substantial physical disabilities. During his testimony, Wallace talked about cutting himself and being punished for it. He said he didn't see a mental health counselor as often as he wanted to. He described being threatened by correctional officers and being made fun of by other men in prison. Lisa Borden says Jamie Wallace needed hospital-level care. Instead, most of the time, he was housed in the Residential Treatment Unit, or RTU, at Donaldson Prison. And when he threatened suicide, Wallace would often be sent to one of the unit's suicide watch cells. I'll tell you, there was a point in the trial where the court did some site visits, and so Judge Thompson went and visited some of these places. And he went to the RTU at Donaldson, and one of the things he saw there was the cell where Jamie had been held um, during some of his suicide watch um, episodes. Borden says the cell was behind a staircase. It had a solid steel door with a small window that was difficult to see through. We walked into the cell, and um, it, it was one of the most depressing, demoralizing places you could ever be. It was filthy. The, there was feces smeared on the wall, you know, they sleep on a concrete block and are given a little thin, you know, mat to throw on top of this concrete block. Um, to think about, you know, somebody who, who is, hears voices and is, you know, thinking about taking his life most of the time, and this is where they put him. In his ruling, Judge Thompson describes visiting the mental health units at Donaldson and Bullock. He says, quote, the majority of prisoners in those units were lying in their cells, often in a fetal position and facing the wall, end quote. The judge also describes visiting segregation units at several facilities. These are isolation cells where men are typically locked up for 23 hours a day or more, usually for punishment, sometimes for protection. The difference between these housing units is important and it can get confusing. Segregation, which is also referred to as restrictive housing, lockup, or solitary, is basically for anyone. People might stay there alone or with another person for weeks, months, even years. That's different from a crisis cell, 
or a suicide watch cell, which are supposed to be suicide-proof. People on suicide watch are only allowed a blanket and a smock. Regulations call for near-constant observation, and people are not supposed to stay in a crisis cell for longer than three days. But according to court documents, prison officials don't always follow protocol. Men without diagnosed mental health needs are sometimes sent to mental health units due to a lack of space. People who should be on suicide watch are sometimes sent to segregation cells. Judge Thompson specifically addressed this issue, and the state agreed in the long term to stop housing people with serious mental illness in segregation. After Jamie Wallace testified at trial, he spent 10 days in the stabilization unit at Bullock Prison. Court records show Wallace was mostly alone in his cell. He had no group activities in those last days because there were not enough guards to do them safely. Lisa Borden says that isolation was extremely difficult for Jamie Wallace. He was very personable. He loved to be around people and to talk to people. And, um, you know, as it turned out, the, the failure of ADOC to facilitate that in any way, in my opinion, is what killed him. Officials with Alabama's prison system say they did provide adequate care to Jamie Wallace. Bill Lunsford is the state's lead attorney. He's represented Alabama in the Braggs case since it started almost eight years ago. I cannot imagine a more tragic story than Jamie Wallace. There was not a person in the courtroom who was not adversely affected by his death. Um, There are things we forget about Jamie. Um, I mean, just a, a tortured personal history that you would not want any human being to endure in terms of his personal history. Um, We had successfully prevented him from committing suicide 60 times, I believe. Um, And that doesn't count the number of times that he had engaged in superficial self-injury. It's very mentally ill. Lisa Borden says the failures in Jamie Wallace's case started before he ever got to prison. She says for years, Wallace's family tried to get him stable help for his mental illnesses. Just weeks before he shot and killed his mother, Wallace had been released from a psychiatric facility and was prescribed new medication. It just blows my mind. You know, he shouldn't have been in prison. He should have been in a hospital. And if we had the kind of mental health care in the community that we ought to have and are supposed to have, then somebody would have been keeping an eye on what was going on with him when he was released from the hospital on new medication. And, you know, his mother might be alive today. Across the nation, prisons and jails are considered to be the biggest providers of mental health care. It hasn't always been that way. Until just a few decades ago, many people with serious mental illness were housed in overcrowded asylums. There were reports of abuse and neglect, people living in horrible conditions with little or no treatment. It sparked a wave of lawsuits, A note here that the following video clip uses language now considered offensive. Over the years, there have been horror stories all over the country about the way the mentally retarded are cared for. This is a national news report from 1972 about a case that started in Alabama. Now in Alabama, a federal judge, Frank Johnson, has ruled for the first time that state officials have a constitutional responsibility to take proper care of those confined in mental institutions. 
Federal Judge Frank Johnson is the same judge who a few years later would place Alabama's prison system under federal oversight. We talked all about that in our second episode. But before that, in the early 70s, was the case that took on Alabama's mental health institutions. It was one of several major cases during the 1960s and 70s that dealt with treating and protecting the rights of people with mental illness. With respect to mental illness, our chief aim is to get people out of state custodial institutions and back into their communities and homes without hardship or danger. This is President John F. Kennedy talking about the Community Mental Health Act, which passed in 1963. The goal was to move people out of large hospitals and into community-based treatment. This is often referred to as deinstitutionalization. Treatment advocates say it was a good idea, but it didn't roll out as planned. States didn't invest enough in outpatient care. At the same time, they cut funding for large mental health facilities. And as the country closed hospitals, it built prisons. In Alabama, data from the early 2000s show that people with mental illness are four times more likely to be incarcerated than hospitalized. Elisa Roth is a reporter who studied this. She wrote a book called Insane, America's Criminal Treatment of Mental Illness. Roth says looking back, you have to be careful when connecting the dots. The story that people like to tell is that we had these institutions where all of our people with mental illness lived. Then back in the 50s and 60s, we shut down those institutions and suddenly everybody was out on the street. They weren't getting mental health care. They committed crimes and they ended up in jail or prison. But there's there's a number of problems with this tidy story that we tell about the, the closing of institutions. To start, she says it's important to remember that the United States has never had a robust or equitable mental health care system. Jail and prison has always been a default landing place for people with mental illness that we, that we didn't know what to do with. The number of people with mental illness in our prisons and jails has increased significantly in recent decades. But Roth says it's not just because states closed institutions. It also has to do with what we talked about in episode three— states adopted harsh sentencing laws and started arresting more people. Roth says there are factors that can make people with mental illness more vulnerable to getting caught in the system, like criminalizing drugs. When we look at people in prison and jail who have a mental illness, a large percentage of them have a co-occurring substance use disorder. So if we're going around arresting and then locking up somebody because they were using drugs, possessing drugs, selling drugs, it then stands to reason that, again, you're going to be sweeping up more people with mental illness. Roth says another thing to keep in mind is that people with mental illness don't always behave in ways that are considered socially acceptable. They may not know how to interact with police or follow commands. And if police feel that someone's behavior is a threat to themselves or others, they often have few options but to arrest them. So there's really a lot of ways that people are ending up in the system and getting stuck in the system. And I think the the sort of larger question is, why is it the system that's, that's responding to the mental illness or the substance use rather than a more appropriate way of dealing with the problem? It's a question that came up for Jeff Dunn while he served as commissioner of the Alabama Department of Corrections. Dunn oversaw the department from 2015 until the end of 2021. 
if the broader society is grappling and struggling with a particular issue, in this case, mental health, then the likelihood is that that same issue is going to be brought into a prison system, but just on steroids. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of statistics out there about, you know, states, prison systems being the largest provider of mental health services and things like that. And that's certainly true in the state of Alabama. But Dunn says prisons are not designed to provide mental health care. We are required to, and nobody debates that, and it's desperately needed. I mean, I, I interact occasionally with inmates that are, that are facing these types of things, and they're human beings too, and they need treatment, and we, and we seek to provide it for them. But it is an enormous challenge because the, the prison environment, the prison system by nature, is not designed to be uh, you know, a clinical... Uh, you know, or the type of environment, if you were a mental health professional, you were going to design to help someone uh, get better. After a break, how Alabama prison officials tried and failed to prevent more suicides. You're listening to Deliberate Indifference from WBHM in Birmingham. Deliberate Indifference is a production of WBHM, NPR News for the Heart of Alabama. We rely on listener donations for much of what we do, including this podcast. If you want to support this work and inspire future reporting, give now. You can donate at deliberateindifference.org. This is a grown-up story about prison. It describes violent acts, including sexual assault. This episode also discusses self-harm and suicide. It's not for kids, and it may not be for all adult listeners. This is Deliberate Indifference. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. In the United States, incarcerated people are some of the only people guaranteed a right to medical care. This comes from a 1976 Supreme Court ruling. In an opinion filed with the clerk today... This is Justice Thurgood Marshall reading the court's opinion. ...unusual punishment requires that prisoners be provided with medical care and that deliberate indifference by prison personnel to a prisoner's serious illness or injury violates the Eighth Amendment. The legal standard is that state officials have to provide minimally adequate care to the people they lock up. In Braggs v. Dunn, men imprisoned in Alabama filed a lawsuit because they said their state was not meeting this standard. In 2017, Judge Myron Thompson agreed He said mental health care in Alabama prisons was horrendously inadequate. Thompson ordered prison officials to increase staffing and better screen inmates for mental health needs. He ordered Alabama to stop using segregation cells for people with serious mental illness. The judge ordered an increase in group activities and time spent outside of cells. Soon after this ruling, the Alabama Department of Corrections brought in a new mental health care provider for its prison system. Wexford Health Sources. I requested an interview with Wexford's leadership. They declined to talk, citing ongoing litigation. Some former employees say the court ruling that was designed to improve care for inmates created frustration for staff. I say this, the employees of Department of Corrections were put in in the middle of a situation between the governor's office and the feds. Elizabeth Sturdivant was a mental health counselor with Wexford for about a year, from 2018 to 2019. 
She worked at Donaldson Prison. It was so many changes. There was a whole bunch of changes that just didn't make any sense. She says some changes were good. New cell doors with bigger windows meant staff could better observe men on suicide watch, seeing clearly through the glass. But Sturdivant says many changes were not even possible due to limited resources and staff. So a lot of stuff gets, to put it, ni- to put it nicely, half-assed. Because you can't do it fully if you don't put the things in place that need to be put in place, like electronic medical records that needs to be put in place. Sturdivant's supervisor at Donaldson Prison was Tara Griffin, who we met earlier. Griffin says the court rulings often made her job more difficult. Every time something was decided in the courts, it was immediately translated or relayed to us. For example, Griffin says she was asked to buy new therapeutic chairs, special chairs that men can be chained to when they receive therapy. But Griffin says she wasn't told how to buy the chairs or what budget they came from. She says the mental health team was ordered to do more group activities, like music and art therapy. They were told to keep men out of their cells for longer periods of time. And so all these things were being increased compared to what had been done prior to Bragg's versus Dunn. And when I say increased, I mean significantly increased. Like going from coming out of the cell one hour a day to coming out of the cell six hours a day. Griffin says there was a big disconnect between the requirements from court orders and what was possible with limited prison staff. The court case people are making these decisions, but I don't think anyone has a really good picture of what's really happening and what are the resources that we're working with. So I want to be clear. It is important that these men and women come out of these cells and have the time out and get the services that they need. But we have to make it practical realistic and attainable. And if you want these amount of hours and you want these things done, then you've got to give the resources to make it happen. And that's where they fail. The point of Judge Thompson's 2017 order was to improve mental health care for people incarcerated in Alabama's prisons. But the next year, suicides increased. 15 men killed themselves in 15 months. And that led to another ruling from the judge. In it, he details the deaths of the 15 men. The baby is me and him together. And this is some pictures growing up. Roderick Abrams was Mary Abrams' only son. He was a healthy little boy, a healthy baby. Had no problems with him at all through birth and coming up. But as he grew, we started noticing that Roderick was um, a little slow. Abram says when her son was in the third grade, he was diagnosed with a learning disability and ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. She took him to a counselor, signed him up for mental health care. Abram says in middle school, her son started getting in trouble, hanging out with a different group of kids. Something just wasn't right that I knew was there, but I just couldn't put my hand on it at the time. Her son spent time in several mental health facilities, he was prescribed medication, but Abram says he didn't like to take it. Abram says when her son was 17, he had a brain aneurysm and almost died. Yes, his personality changed. He was, you know, feeling like that uh, self-conscious feeling and stuff like that. And I always talk to him to let him know, you're not the only one, you know, just do the best you can. 
Don't think bad of yourself all the time. Excuse me. And um, just try to encourage him as a mother should. When he was 20, her son, Roderick Abrams, was convicted of receiving stolen property and third-degree burglary. He served time and was released. Then, in 2004, Roderick Abrams was convicted of capital murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. Mary Abrams says over the years, her son told her about being assaulted in prison. Oh, great deal. A great deal. It wasn't Roderick anymore. It wasn't him. I've seen a, a big change in my son. From being beaten, stabbed. Abram says she sent her son's medical and mental health history to the warden and the chaplain. She called the prison, called prison headquarters, desperate for someone to get her son some treatment. She wanted to keep him safe. If my son had got the proper care that he really needed, I believe Roger would be living today. He wanted help. He reached out for help from Montgomery to Washington. We called, we called, and we called. We didn't get any help. Judge Myron Thompson describes Roderick Abrams' death in a 2019 ruling about suicide prevention. The judge says rampant failures plagued his case. According to court records, Abrams did not consistently receive mental health care in prison. He had a history of using drugs. In the months leading up to his death, Abrams was in and out of segregation. Required mental health screenings were delayed. Abrams told a nurse he was considering suicide, but many of his counseling appointments were canceled because of staffing shortages. Abrams had told prison staff that he'd been sexually assaulted by another man in prison. He said he was feeling hopeless and fearful. In late December of 2018, Roderick Abrams said he was afraid to go back to his cell block. He was placed on suicide watch for a few days. The day after Christmas, prison staff moved Abrams off of suicide watch. And a few days later, on January 2nd, 2019, prison officials say Roderick Abrams killed himself in a segregation cell at St. Clair Correctional Facility. Hey, Marty, Lord, I'm trying to call from the home. Mary Abrams got this voicemail from her son, Roderick Abrams, the morning of his death. They talked later that day, and she could tell something was wrong with her son. He started telling me on that phone, I love you. Tell your sister, my sister, tell me, see, Mika, I love them. He's a mom, I love all of y'all. He did that, and that just didn't ring a bell, because he never did that. He always said, I love you, Mama. I'll talk to you later and hang up, because he always said, don't tell me bye. Mary Abrams says she and her daughters learned about Roderick's death when another inmate called them later that day. They called the prison to confirm the news. Jamise Abrams is Roderick's sister. You know... Um, no matter how many times you call, leave a message, um, nobody helps. He's already feeling confined in there, as it is. He'll have an issue. He'll go to somebody, ask for help. Nobody helps him. Nobody believes him. 
So that pl- that uh, that'll play a part. I say not only the I guess the issues that he did have as far as you know the fights or the you know people putting him down or things like that. That stuff played a part in it. Um, I think the worst part though was actually having to go to a funeral home and see my brother. That was the worst. She said it all. That was the worst. And it left us feeling like we, 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 as his sister and as his mom, I feel like we didn't do enough. Even though he was in there and they were supposed to provide him with those things. I feel like, well, he didn't do enough to help him either. That's how I feel. We were limited on the outside as well. We did everything we could do. I know I did. Mary Abrams is working with a lawyer to sue Wexford Health Sources and the Alabama Department of Corrections over her son's death. They filed a case in 2020. Mary Abrams does not want other families to go through the same thing. That was my son. I birthed him in the world. I did everything I possibly could to get my child help, even before he got grown to even get in trouble like this. Money is not an issue. It's the principle of how these men are being treated in these prison systems. Roderick Abrams killed himself in a segregation cell. That's where most suicides happen. Federal Judge Myron Thompson describes these units as having an overpowering sense of abandonment and despair. Some days I just felt so helpless. Like, I couldn't do enough. Former mental health supervisor Tara Griffin says every day she worked inside Alabama's prisons, she worried about suicide. The stress of keeping these guys alive is more intense to me and very precious for um, mental health staff. And so not only am I carrying that for me, but I'm carrying that for the staff too, who are also worried and concerned about the patients that they're assigned, right? Or even if they're not assigned, like people your heart goes out to just these men, you know, and the stress that they're in because at the end of the day, they're humans. They're human. So we care. That's what we care about. That's why we're in this field. After Judge Thompson ordered Alabama to improve suicide prevention, prison officials agreed to enhance training and change procedures to better identify people at risk. That was in 2019, Since then, the rate of suicides has dropped, but at least a dozen more men have killed themselves inside Alabama's prisons. There's also been a dramatic increase in the number of men placed on suicide watch. When she worked at Donaldson Prison, Tara Griffin says sometimes, when she was short on staff, she took shifts monitoring people on suicide watch. Griffin says she saw men facing different challenges. When you have these serious mental illnesses and people commit crimes in the midst, in the height of their illness, when they get cognizant again, they're haunted by their demons. Um, I think the other thing that happens is 
not being able to get peace with this being the reality, the, the, the prison sentence, you know. If it's, you know, more than 10 years, then it's almost like a lifetime, even if it's not a lifetime. And then um, untreated mental illness. Untreated, just plain old, maybe some psychosis going on, um, and just despair. Same thing you would see out in the real world. Um, but the despair is probably tenfold because, like we've already identified, the system, the environment is just, it's just distressing, you know? Um, I left every day and it was distressing for me. Imagine never getting to leave. I was able to get a glimpse of mental health care in state prisons. When I toured Kilby Correctional Facility back in 2019, I saw the suicide watch cells there, used for men who need mental health crisis care. We have 15 crisis cells. But with the 15 crisis cells that we have, we have to provide for other facilities. Leon Bowling was the warden at the time. He's since retired. Explain what a crisis cell is for. For inmates that are saying they're going to do self-harm to themselves, um, inflict injury, uh, have suicidal thoughts and different stuff like that. Bowling shows me the inside of a crisis cell. It's bare bones, a metal toilet, and a twin-sized mat on a metal frame. Nothing else. It's a single cell, bed bolted to the floor, and one mattress on the floor. Everything's supposed to be trying to be free from person being able to do something to harm themselves. And once this person goes on acute, saying that he's suicidal or whatever, then you have to have an observer has to sit there and monitor this inmate behavior 24-7 around the clock, okay? Until you come off acute or non-acute and be dropped back. Bowling says the biggest challenge with mental health care is staffing. He says the prison system needs more people to observe inmate behavior. It needs more correctional officers to transport men to counseling sessions. It needs more officers to protect people in prison from harm. That's what the federal judge says, too. It's been five years since Judge Myron Thompson issued his first major ruling about mental health care in the Braggs lawsuit. He recently issued another major ruling at the very end of 2021. The judge says, after several years of litigation, some aspects of mental health care in Alabama's prisons have improved. Prison staff now better identify people with mental health needs. They develop treatment plans. They have a better system for suicide watch. But Judge Thompson says there are still many deeply serious problems. Inadequate record keeping, not enough counseling or therapy, more mental health providers, but not enough. And above all else, Judge Thompson says there are still not enough correctional officers. He says this is the biggest problem. And as long as Alabama's prisons remain understaffed, people with mental health needs are at a daily serious risk of deprivation, decompensation, and death. Officials with the Alabama Department of Corrections have appealed the recent order. They say the ruling is too broad and unreasonable. They argue that mental health care in state prisons is minimally adequate. The state's appeal is now pending before the courts. Bill Lunsford is the state's lead attorney. I talked to him a few months before the latest ruling came down. 
really, it's difficult to imagine since 2017 an area of the Department of Corrections that Commissioner Dunn and his team have not attempted to overhaul in some way. Lunsford says in recent years, Alabama has invested millions of dollars to hire more mental health providers and improve mental health training. He says the state is taking steps to improve, which should satisfy the court. People often characterize the Department of Corrections as, a, as an institution, but I deal with people. And the people that I deal with, they don't disregard anything. I mean, they are invested in the system, and they're consciously making choices every day to ensure that these people are receiving every single form of mental health care or medical care that they need. In addition to the Braggs case, Lunsford represents the state in another high-profile lawsuit filed by U.S. justice officials. They sued Alabama in late 2020 over conditions of violence and sexual assault in its prisons for men. Lunsford also represents other prison systems across the country. He says litigation is common, and people often file lawsuits to spark change. But he says cases can drag on for years, and it's expensive. In recent years, the Alabama Department of Corrections has spent millions on legal fees. In terms of institutional reform in a correctional context, which we're involved in in a number of different states, litigation is the slowest, least effective way to do it. Alabama lawyers who represent inmates with mental illness disagree with that assessment. They say litigation takes a long time, but it's worth it because it forces change. Tara Griffin, the former mental health supervisor, worked in Alabama's prison system during a time when the courts were ordering changes. And she says she did see some improvements. And one of the things that that the Dunn versus Rag lawsuit has done that I think is amazing is they have increased training where mental health professionals train the security staff. Griffin says inside prison, there can be a disconnect between correctional officers and mental health staff. She says since officer training focuses on the potential for violence, officers look for safety threats. She says they often don't know how to identify depression or psychosis. One of the things that the officers used to tell me all the time is like having these conversations with mental health professionals, like being transparent with one another, telling like, I don't believe that he's ill. And me going back and saying, well, he is. And let me tell you why he is, as evidenced by these things. Not just, you know, because they need to be able to see the officers do. They're very... You know, like, show me the facts. <laughs> Give me the proof, which I get it, right? Because of the way they're trained their way and I'm trained my way. And so trying to merge those two ways of thinking so that we can best serve the um, patient inmate. Griffin says many of the people working inside Alabama's prison system want things to be better. They want less violence and more programming. Mental health staff want to spend more time caring for their patients. But Griffin says that requires more people more resources. Truth be told, lives have been lost, things have happened, the conditions are deplorable. I, it, it's not a lie. <laughs> it is all true. But you, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I just don't think there's enough, like you said, empathy going on. Since she left her job in 2019, Griffin says many of the people she worked with have also left both mental health professionals and correctional officers. Because of the Braggs versus Dunn lawsuit, 
Alabama has been under court order for years to hire more security staff. In fact, the state was supposed to bring on more than 2,000 correctional officers by now. But the most recent court ruling says staffing numbers have barely increased. Alabama's prisons are still operating with fewer than half the correctional officers that they need. The state now has until July of 2025 to meet the court-mandated staffing quota. But current and former officers say it's a tough job. When you see on TV, this person got killed, this person got stabbed, this person is beaten up, who in their right mind would want to work in a prison? It's what many call the biggest issue facing the Alabama Department of Corrections, how to hire enough correctional officers to keep people in Alabama's prisons safe. You got to imagine they broke every bone in his face. Every bone. You know, I'm thinking guards, they're supposed to protect him. That's next time on Deliberate Indifference. This is Deliberate Indifference. I'm Mary Scott Hodgen. I wrote and reported this episode. Kate Smith edited the script. Meg Martin fact-checked the episode. Matthew Hancock created our music and served as audio engineer. Miranda Fulmore helped with production assistance and digital material. Help along the way from Audrey Atkins and Andrew Yeager. Website designed by Cayenne Creative. NPR Story Lab helped get this project started. Thanks to Debbie Elliott and Peter Breslow. And special thanks to Alberto Enes Romero. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our website for more details. That's deliberateindifference.org. Join me next time for a new episode of Deliberate Indifference.